0: On today's episode of PolicyWise. In
1: 2018, the CDC reported that 26%, or one in four, of adults in the United States have some type of disability.
2: The, The way I was treated with my 504 plan and getting accommodations, other disability rights issues, I personally did not have the best experience. In
1: 2019, the US Census found that over 3 million children in the United States had a disability since 2008.
2: Something
3: terrible is happening. I'm gonna die of BDs. And then I had the doctor explain what it was and I was like, oh, okay. Kids didn't get it. And so like, all they knew was like, it's a sickness. A lot of kids I would be like, don't touch her. She'll give it to you. And I was like, it's not the cheese touch. I can't give you my bad pancreas. That's not how it works. A lot of seven-year-olds don't get that.
1: With the highest rate of childhood disability belonging to the American Indian and Alaska Native communities followed by children of more than one race and black children.
0: Today we will be discussing the experience of those with disabilities and disability rights in California.
3: Especially when you're little and to other kids, the idea of anything that seems other gets defined as bad pretty often.
2: And people were like, you're so lucky that you get ADHD medication and you can just focus anytime you want. I'm like, it's not a recreational drug to me. Like, it's like a therapeutic device.
0: From this conversation, we hope to illuminate the challenges as well as policy plans to tackle systematic barriers to those with disabilities. I think a teacher without training has the ability to do so much harm. Like if a
2: student comes to them saying that they're dealing with depression or anxiety and the teacher says, oh, you're strong, you can get over it. Like instead of like a referral to actual
0: services. But more on that later. Welcome to PolicyWise, a Youth Leadership Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Arsbecker.
1: And I'm your other host, Michael Biafe. With us, we have a few guests. The first one is Sophia Trexler. Sophia, would you mind introducing yourself?
2: Hi, my name is Sophia Trexler. Pronouns are she, her. I currently work for Disability Rights California as a peer self advocacy trainer um and also i'm on the transitional youth advocacy
0: board for mental health america of california and i'm a student at fresno city college
1: awesome thank you for joining us
0: we also have with us a very special guest my sister natalia natalia would you mind introducing yourself
1: yes
3: hello i'm natalia arzbecker my pronouns are she her i am a freshman at uc san diego and I'm a type 1 diabetic, and I've had type 1 diabetes for the past 11 years.
0: It's great to have you both with us. We're really excited for this episode. Starting with you, Sophia. why, why do you think this is an important issue for you? Um, I myself have disabilities. I
2: had a 504 plan in high school, um, and my job is a, a peer self-advocacy trainer, so I work as a peer to transitional age youth who have psychiatric disabilities, which is what I have. Um, so yeah, just the, the way I was treated um, with my 504 plan and everything and getting accommodations and just like other disability rights issues, I personally did not have the best experience. And obviously the goal is to make sure that no one else has those experiences as well. So that's why it's an important issue to me.
0: Absolutely. And I know, Natalia, you've you have gone through some of the same experiences. So why is this an important issue for you?
2: um
3: well there's always like that that saying the personal is political so the idea of like experiencing disability myself having to deal with that basically my most of my life um and like having also experiences with 504 plans and trying to get accommodations and everything that goes along with that um and then also just seeing like a reflection of like how healthcare is really inaccessible for a lot of people being able to like witness how my like the fact that I'm privileged and where I was like brought up and everything, that I had access to things that allowed my my medical journey to be a lot easier than it is for a lot of people. So just um, being aware of how difficult healthcare and having access to things like insulin, which make my life possible, is very difficult for a lot of
1: people. I would just love to clarify for the listeners, what is a
2: 504 plan? Um, so it's under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act it basically gives you accommodations in a school setting. It's only in K through 12. It's different than IEP, which is an individualized educational plan, um, which can be more intensive. It's just different. It's just like two different ways of having accommodations in the learning environment. Um, But yeah, it gives you accommodations in a school setting. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for clarifying. Um, Natalia, you mentioned that you've had diabetes for 11 years. You were diagnosed at the age of seven, so quite young. I remember some stories from when you we were in elementary school about some of the things other kids would say and just generally some of the, the stuff around being a young person with a disability in that setting. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like being diagnosed at such a young age and kind of the stigma that you experienced and, and the conversation you experienced from kids your age when you were, when you were in elementary school?
3: I was diagnosed really young, so I didn't understand the depth of what it meant to have like a disability, like a lot of the stigma, big stigma around it that I think is unintentional, that I think it, it's like the idea of like things being like good intentions is that no adults in my life really ever like sat me down to be like, this is a chronic illness, this is disability. I think it was just assumed that I understood what that meant Instead, it was sort of just like, this is what you have. And so the idea of like trying to alleviate like you don't want to address it, you know, it's sort of like the elephant in the room, because they think that it makes it easier if you don't know, I guess. Um, And so like, I know that when I got diagnosed, funny story is, I didn't know what diabetes was. And so when I heard it, I thought it was die of BDs. And I was terrified, I thought I was gonna die, because no one wanted to explain it to me. And I was like, in the hospital, and my mom was crying. And I was like, my mom never cries. Oh, my God, Um, something terrible is happening. I'm gonna die of BDs. And then I had the doctor explain what it was. And I was like, Oh, okay this is not as bad as I thought it was, but yeah, it was definitely weird going back to school and that transition of trying to explain it to people. Of like, kids didn't get it. And so like, all they knew was like, it's a sickness. And we have this idea of what like sickness is and diseases. And it's, so I had a lot of people thinking that they could catch it from me. So I remember being like very isolated, especially the first couple of years I was diagnosed because there was like a lot of kids that would be like, don't touch her. She'll give it to you. And I was like, it's not the cheese touch. I can't give you my bad pancreas. That's not how it works. Um, yeah, I, unfortunately I can't touch you and boom, your beta cells stop working. That's kind of, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but a lot of seven-year-olds don't get that. So it was a lot of explaining myself to people for a really long time. Like, especially when you're little and to other kids being like, that's not how it works. Um, and obviously kids are a little bit ruthless. They don't really know, they don't get it. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that comes from any disability is that idea of like othering that happens especially so young because kids just I think don't understand when people are different like it's such a huge issue of like trying to expose kids to it but the idea of anything that seems other gets defined as bad pretty often and so that was mm-hmm. definitely the biggest challenge i had to deal with is just trying to get people to understand that like my disability does in fact make me a little bit different it changes the way that i interact with the world to an extent but it doesn't mean that it's like i'm somehow less of a person or something or like less than in a way, if that makes any sense.
1: Do you think a solution to the challenge uh, that you're kind of describing for us uh, would be solved by maybe uh, teaching all children what a disability is and what that means for your classmates? Oh, would do you think all students would need to learn that? Or maybe it would it be um, only in classrooms where a student is diagnosed with something?
3: I think it's that everyone should learn it because I think that the issue is that sometimes it's really hard to like reach, People after, it's it's kind of like not, it's to do something post, you know, someone getting diagnosed or someone having a disability, it's sort of not effectively solving the issue because then you're doing it after it's already become a problem. I think being preemptive and sort of teaching everyone because at some point in your life, you're going to come across somebody that has some form of a disability, whether it's super visible, super apparent, very, you know, has a direct effect on their able-bodied, or if it's more you know I'm sort of more of like an invisible disability category where it's not very apparent if you look at me because I'm still able to very much like coherently communicate and use my body for the most part so the idea of like trying to like nip it in the bud of explaining that like not everyone's gonna have the same body as you not everyone's gonna exist the same as you everyone has different problems um and the idea of like trying to under how kids understand that like it's not something that's wrong or like dirty because I think a huge issue with it is that kids just don't get it and I didn't get it for a really long time like I didn't have anyone sit me down to tell me that I had a chronic illness until I was 15. It took eight years of being diagnosed before someone looked at me directly to tell me it was like a chronic illness which is crazy considering that i had been like dealing with it for seven like eight years. Um, so I was like seven years old, you know, that's a really long time to like not ever like address it as it fully is, you know. Um, and I think the idea of like walking on eggshells doesn't really help anyone in the long term. Like, I know that there's this idea of protecting kids, but I think in the long t- run, it doesn't make it better. In fact, it just makes it harder to deal with later on. Um, and obviously, Sophia, you've talked a little bit about how you have experienced disability. How
2: do you say that would affect you in the classroom settings? I'm curious as well. Well, first was the issue of getting diagnosed one of the things I have is ADHD. So in women, it tends to be severely underdiagnosed. And then in some minority groups, it's not viewed as like a a problem that not okay, not a, it's not viewed as like something that's wrong, but rather like a behavioral issue and like Then you get into issues of like school to prison pipeline, like, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, the first hurdle was getting diagnosed. And then I got my 504 plan. And then I don't know. I'm pretty open about my disabilities or whatever. Like, I'm not ashamed. Like, if someone wants to, like, I don't care. But like, one of the accommodations I get is like extra time on tests. And people would be like, you're so lucky that you get extra time on tests. For no reason and then then i take adhd medication and people were like you're so lucky that you get adhd medication and you can take it and you can just focus anytime you want i'm like it's not a recreational drug to me like it's like a therapeutic device yeah I, I really get that. I also experienced that with
3: my accommodations of having people be like, you're really lucky to have those accommodations. Like, these are accommodations that help me exist, like you do, that help me exist as like a person that has the same like access to like things that like, you already get to deal with as a person doesn't face any disability. Like, I also was a person that got, you know, extra time on tests or I had, I had the issue to be able to take tests if I had blood sugar issues and leaving classrooms with blood sugar issues or being able to go to the nurse's office or leave to like, we're eating food in class. And I would, you know, I remember like, I would like pull a juice box out, like to like, because that's what I, I to me, that's like, I always make jokes that I never understood how people could drink juice boxes for fun because for me, like in my brain, I've coded them as like life juice. <laughs> because I, I drink them when I have low blood sugar, and so like people, i drinking drinking in the class, and people are like, "Oh my gosh, you're so lucky that you get to have food in class." And I'm like, "I drink this so I don't die." Like I like it's not it's not really like a ooh so fun like snacks in class. Like I think people expect that like there's also that presumption that you're like somehow exploiting the system or that you're like exploiting your your you know accommodations as if your disability doesn't make life harder enough as are as it as it is. Like I. Like I've definitely experienced that of people being like, you, you don't really need that, do you? Because they don't understand like how it impacts your life. And there's that like misunderstanding. So people are like, they see you as like a very like, I, I think because both of us, I assume have pretty, uh, like what I always refer to as like invisible disabilities. Of, of they're not super apparent if you look at us. And so it doesn't, you don't exist in, a, in, in the mindset of what people assume is what disabled looks like. Because there is with everything, the idea of like the assumptions of what it looks like to be disabled or what it appears like to be disabled. The same as you said with, like, difficulties getting diagnosed, like, a lot of times um, AFAB people, which stands for assigned female at birth, have a hard time getting diagnosed with um, any sort of, like, neurological issues, um, like, any sort of, like, neurodivergencies, like autism or ADHD, just because it's, the, the way we code it tends to be uh, male, I mean, like, it, people experience things differently. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how all of that affects how people perceive you and how people treat, you know your existence and your accommodations.
4: You mentioned kind of this um, basically stigma, right? If there's people see you and, and what you look like, um, and, and they think that you're exploiting the system. And and that belief on its own has some sort of impact on policy and resources they're able to receive. And, and maybe the funds that a university, not university, but like a school administrator might give towards the disability resources to might think, oh, we don't want to give too much. You know, we don't want to um, allow them to exploit the system. Sophia, maybe in your experience, how do you, because uh, you're you're working in this world, um, have you seen that at all? Have you experienced that?
2: Um. Well, like I work at a disability rights organization, so I wouldn't say that any anything happens in the workplace as far as stigma. I feel like. I feel like change and more accessibility and more resources has to come before ending stigma. Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, there diff- definitely is stigma towards people with disabilities, but like the main push is to get like resources for people with disabilities so that they can like live their lives. Um, and then Like, once we make things accessible, like, and provide educational resources on, like, what disability is, then the stigma not goes, like, will be, you know, reduced or mitigated. Um, There definitely is a push to, like, reduce stigma in, like, language and the way we talk about people with disabilities, because, you know, like, words are powerful and like carry connotations like the r slur like we don't use that anymore because it's like offensive um at my organization we use the default is person first language so instead of disabled person you say person with disabilities um so you make sure that like a person's like personhood is their defining factor and not the fact that they have a disability. Um, for, for me, either is fine. Um, and so, some people, like, well, they, they prefer the label of just disabled person. I just say, like, use the language that people are comfortable with. But yeah, I think the main push that I've seen, especially in the workplace, has a lot to do with, like, language, and the way we talk about people with disabilities, like we don't use like the mentally ill. It's like people with mental health conditions, like not like the R slur, it's people with intellectual disabilities, like stuff like that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, gotcha. Um, you mentioned that some of the, the process of removing stigma around disabilities comes Um, as a result of having more resources and access to better resources. So I know um, Natalia and I went to a pretty big public high school in Sacramento where we're from. And I know mental health resources were a bit um, iffy at times. I think there were a lot of students who felt like they couldn't rely on mental health resources at our school. I know we didn't even have a just regular nurse for a long period of time at our high school. So I know at least in Natalia's experience, some of these resources are can be lacking at our at our schools. Um you're more tapped into this work. What would you say the general consensus is around K through 12 disability resources and and in your experience what does that really look like? Um
2: well, it's overall I would say it's not great, especially when we talk about mental health resources. I mean, there definitely is this thing that like there are very specific laws like governing how people with disabilities are accommodated and should be accommodated. And there are like my, where I work, I'm on the non-legal side of things, but like a big part of what we do, it's like legal resources for people with disabilities who have had their rights violated. Um, But like, obviously the goal is not to have your rights violated and have to, you know, go through the court system to ameliorate it. The goal is to like just get the resources. Um, that's something that we were trying to do with SB 224, which was the bill to mandate education about mental health in public schools. Um, just because of politics, the way the bill started out and the version that got passed are very different. Um, and there's a lot of because, you know, teachers don't want to have more things that they have to teach because they're severely underpaid and under-resourced. But even bills that, like, or programs that provide, like, free mental health resources, like people from the community who come in and provide mental health resources at a school, like, they literally just need a classroom to, like, set up their stuff. Like, even those are widely opposed. Um, But, yeah, I... I don't know anyone who's had like a positive experience with like mental health resources at the school. Like the consensus is usually they're pretty bad.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanna uh, talk about the the legislation real quick. Um, I'm all too familiar with the political process and how <laughs> uh, the, this is the saying usually the sausage gets made because mm-hmm. you tend to come out with a, a, a pretty simple, this is what we're gonna do. And then everybody wants to attack in their little thingies. And then by the end, you know, there's a lot of different pieces of meat in there. Um, what, what, Where did it start and where did it end up? Um, you mentioned that it, it ended up differently then. Yeah, would you mind explaining that to us?
2: Um. Yeah, so where we started, the original text of the bill was mental health education, in K through 12 schools. So the goal originally in the bill was to have mental health education at least once in elementary school, so like K through six, once in middle school, seventh or eighth grade, and then once in high school, which would be like ninth through 12th grades. Um, Because of substantial opposition from the big teachers union And I get where they were coming from about like teachers already having too much to teach already, but like at the same time, like this is something that needed to happen a long time ago. Um, So it got amended to mental health education only in schools that have an existing health curriculum. So there's a couple problems with that mostly that schools who have a health class already touch on mental health in some way. Um, but also, you know, like when you're in like kindergarten or, you know, fourth grade, you don't have class periods. Like there's no health class. Um, and I would say the vast majority of health classes are offered at the high school level in like ninth grade. So technically applying to k-12 through schools it's basically once in high school in health classes that probably already taught mental health anyway but the california department of education once the bill formally gets implemented in january they're working on stuff um like after you know this implementation process there's like a chance to go further and mandated in all schools but that's a couple years from now so for me it was a little disappointing because I worked really closely on the bill and I like I like spoke in front of the senate um health committee and the assembly education committee and you know you like tell them how much it means to you and how like you wish you had these resources and they're like no
0: Mm. (sighs) that
4: is that is well, I just want to say that, A, think if you're at the end of the world, and B, just because the battle wasn't, just because the war wasn't won in this one battle,
1: this is a step forward, even though that's not as satisfying, it means that in the next ask, in the next budget year, in the next legislative cycle, that you could once again ask for it to be implemented in the way that you want it to be. And the process is sometimes slow, but it does not mean that there's this opportunity is gone in the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it they, it was a little bit frustrating cuz they had tried to pass the same bill a couple years ago and it got canned. So the progress is is slow but very incremental yeah. and Governor Newsom in this budget year, he has allocated a lot of resources towards mental health, like the children and youth like behavioral health initiative and stuff. So hopefully, with the inclusion of those resources, there will be more mental health resources in schools. Um, Despite what happened with this bill, like obviously, I'm happy it got passed. But I don't know, because it was my first experience, like working so in depth in the process. It was just so it was so disheartening. But you know, I'm excited to see where it goes in the future.
1: I'm glad to hear that, Uh, Natalia. Um, I'm curious how this bill, and now that it's passed, and I'd love to hear if, if you're able to distinguish between the original idea versus the fin- finalized product, how might this have changed your experience?
3: I don't know that much about like the, the political scope of, of disability. Unfortunately, I've not been that experienced with it. Um, I know that having resources allocated in school to... Um, disability is always really important because I know that when I was going to high school we had a nurse that was there once every two weeks I think and I was asked while there by the nurse because I was like one of the, the students that had a disability that had experienced it for so long I was asked on advice for how to train teachers and things like that so obviously like the idea of like it would have been better in the first place of like not waiting to have a student that has a disability to inform teachers on how to deal with disability or, or teaching students because as a student at a school that's, I was also a very, very big school, so obviously it was not one of the only students there that had a disability that I was being asked of like, oh, do you think that the teacher should have training on, on glucagon, glucagon training, which is, um, if I were or I or any other diabetic student were to have passed out from low blood sugar. Glucagon is uh, an injection that you can give to raise blood sugar and without it, it's, it's, uh, very deadly to not have glucagon. And I was informed that very few teachers at the school had had any glucagon training or any like administration training and things like that. And so, uh, the, the nurse asked me if uh, that was one something I wanted to be willing to like advocate for like I thought that it was important that teachers learn that oh, and the yeah. same goes for like other uh, ideas of how to sort of treat uh, disability uh, which is a lot of stress to put on like a, I was like 16 at the time and I was like I don't know that much <laughs> I only know my personal experience and it honestly seems uh, kind of ill plan to address it after you already have students at a school that are d- d- struggling with disability instead of having a plan in place to protect students. So the idea that, the, or the, the fact that there's um, laws being implemented to help, you know, educate teachers and students on, on how to address disability and mental illness is uh, really important because it shouldn't be on students or people that have disabilities to inform and educate people because it's already difficult enough to deal with it. That's not really your job to be a teacher as well.
1: Yeah, and, and it's it's hard to strike that balance, right? And I think in an ideal world, uh, at least uh, at least I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, that a teacher should be would
4: be able to identify it right before even you know, assuming that the student has the has active health care would be able to access a doctor who's able to accurately you know, kind of diagnose whatever challenges student might be facing. Um, instead of teachers who don't know how to handle it, like, they should be able to identify it um, in a classroom and be able to make
2: One of the big criticisms of SB 224 when it was going through the legislative process was that it would put too much liability on teachers because teachers don't have training um, on how, on like mental health and how to identify it and stuff. Um, and the uh, inclusion of a class, if it were spread out like throughout class periods and not in a health class, then teachers would have to get a bunch of training on, you know, like mental health and how to identify signs. Um, But I think that's like a bigger issue that teachers already don't have training on mental illness and, you know, they're like psychiatric conditions, and how to identify them in you know, the students that they teach. Um, and I think a teacher without training has the ability to do so much harm, like if a student comes to them saying that, you know, that they're dealing with depression or anxiety, and the teacher says, Oh, you're strong, you can get over it, like, instead of like a referral to actual services, or a school psychologist, or any sort of like, Effective means of dealing with, you know, mental health conditions. So, I I do think that teachers do have a lot on their plates already, but I don't think the solution is just throwing these necessary things by the wayside. Probably, paying and appreciating teachers more is the solution if we expect them to do all this training, um, which I think could happen. Like I definitely think teachers deserve to be paid more regardless.
0: I'm um curious about moving I guess away from the K through twelve conversation. Obviously, as we've been talking about, there's a lot to be discussed when it comes to where the responsibility should lie in terms of disability training. And Natalia, like you brought up um being asked to to give input on on your teachers and their the knowledge they should have. And then Sophia, the points you brought up about putting too much weight on teachers hopefully legislation moving forward I know Sophia you said it's can be kind of incremental hopefully this is something that can be addressed as we as we continue to develop legislation and hopefully pass it um, but I'm curious a lot of this conversation has been centered around K through 12 experiences um, I guess starting with Natalia I know both of you are in college now Sofia, you're Fresno Community College looking to transfer to a UC. Good luck with your apps, by the way. Natalia, you're in your first quarter at UCSD. So I guess starting with you, Natalia, what's it been like to go through the process of kind of entering adulthood, starting a new stage of life with a disability, and particularly like moving out and attending a new institution? I mean, I'm sure there've been, not to speak for you, but I guess there's just been a lot of changes that have been happening in regards to the the circumstances and the responsibilities that you have. So can you talk a little bit about that?
3: For me personally, like a, a big issue that I faced was I had to change insurances just because um, I, I grew up in Northern California and um, I'm now going to school in SoCal. So obviously my insurance doesn't cover, you know, the the, the doctors that we have down here are not the same as up uh, up north. And so I had to transfer to, you know, UC health insurance and all of that of like the struggle to try to find an endocrinologist and getting referrals and having to meet my doctor here and all of that stuff. And I was lucky that the doctor, my primary care physician that I got to meet with, you know, within the first like month I was at school was very informed on diabetes and immediately put in a referral for me once I, when she saw that I was a diabetic, which is very nice of her. There is still a lot of difficulty of like picking what doctors you want. Um, like I still have to go through all the process so. of of going through the insurance to find out like how to you know get um get to my endocrinologist and things like that and um I know that filing for disabilities was a really uh, kind of strange process I mean I was sort of more used to the 504 plan which is was developed when I was pretty young when my parents were sort of in charge of it um and so it was developed my doctors and so it was kind of like every year my doctor would sign off on it and the transition to college I was talking to disability offices for like a few hours, you have to go through the process of telling them like what your disability is and how it affects you and you have to write a whole thing. And you have to like, you know, address what disability accommodations you think you need. You know, you have to, if you have a 504 plan, it helps a lot or any form of previous disability accommodations. Um, And then you have to like call to get them implemented. And also the same goes for housing. There's a different application for both housing and both um, academic accommodations. If you live on the dorms, and so that was really strange because I had to like, I remember I was traveling and I had to do, fill out all these documents to just like, I had to get my, my endocrinologist to sign off on something. I had to, you know, get all of my old and any of my old records to the, to the school. And it was kind of like, I realized I was really lucky that I was in a position where I had you know parents helping me for a really long time, like with, um, access to like insurance and medical documents and going to health appointments. And I had, I had really great doctors. So I was really, which is really great. And I realize it's so difficult for students out there that have disabilities that don't have a, su- a good support system and don't have doctors that are willing to, um, willing to basically like, you know, write things for them, you know, emails, things like that. And so that weird transfer to, uh, also like leaving behind all of my old doctors was kind of strange. I think it was, it was weird because you're suddenly put, sort of pushed out in the world on your own. So you're sort of in charge of everything. And, um, it's weird because for so long especially throughout like you know high school and and prior to that I um, was so used to having the same doctors and um, and having you know a similar like school environment and so teachers sort of like knew to an extent um, and now it's very different because college is very different from high school in a lot of ways there's it's such it's so much bigger so it's a lot harder to keep track of all of the students and you have less of a personal relationship with your faculty so it's less easy to have a conversation about um, getting your needs recognized, so.
1: Natalia, based on your experience, do you think it would be helpful? Let me let me roll, roll it back a little bit. So there's something actually being implemented now and then in the coming years, I think it's actually starting uh, next year, California's longitudinal data system, which is basically a massive data system that amasses it follow it's longitudinal, and so as soon as you enter the education system, um, the state's going to keep all your record in one place, and and students will be able to use use their records and share it, and and, and there's a lot that kind of comes to it. But what's not included in this data is, give me a second, got to refresh.
4: <laughs> what's not included in this data is um, qualitative data, basically this kind of stuff, right? Uh, what what have you experienced? Um, what support might you need? Uh, what they will be able to see is this student, this student has a difficulty. They wouldn't be able to know what they wouldn't be able to see necessarily the details of how to best support you. You think it would be helpful if a data system like this included further details, maybe from your previous counselors, that to the notes, um, and then that information always be encouraged. You think that would kind of help alleviate some of the challenges that come out of starting a new life like this?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think that like, um, it's just a fine line to walk on like the legal issues of, of trying to protect students' rights and students' privacies of, of, of medical issues, which is obviously very evident um you with know, the laws and things like that. But I think that like uh as long as students write off on obviously having that information being given to uh teachers and to faculty and any one that's part of the United you know, Class School system, um, of having that just easily accessible for everyone who's involved. It makes it a lot easier to transition between classes because um, I'm on the quarter system here, which means that like every ten weeks, I'm having new teachers and new classes, which makes it kind of difficult to um, really get situated with. You know, like I used to have like you know year long teachers and stuff. Getting situated with how my uh, disabilities will disability uh, accommodations will be implemented. So the idea of having it being able to sort in one. One direct area would be very helpful because obviously I'm, I'm not like embarrassed about my disability. I'm obviously very upfront about it. And so it makes it a lot easier with teachers and faculty have a very really, like, straightforward place and, and uh, other doctors and everything have a very straightforward place to go and look for it.
0: Definitely. Um, I think Natalia, as you brought up, you have had Um, a lot of support from family and just like the situation that you were in that isn't necessarily true for all people and particularly students with disabilities who have had disabilities from a young age. I guess transitioning over to you, Sophia. Um, similarly, what has your experience been? I guess moving into this new life stage into adulthood, into being a college student, but also have you noticed any challenges when it comes to equity within the resources that you're trying to access or the accommodations you're trying to get and I guess what work is there currently happening right now about how to make disability resources equitable
2: so like the the transition period from like childhood into adulthood um like that's my like area of expertise like as an as a member of the demographic. It's like transitional age youth or te I might use the terms interchangeably um but yeah, so basically like once you turn eighteen. Like, a lot of things are just, like, your responsibility. Like, for s- schools, like, there's FERPA, so your parents can't look at your grades or, like, make educational decisions for you or view your educational progress. For healthcare, like, I had to make a dentist appointment for myself the other day. I was in shambles. That was too, that was too <laughs> much for me to handle. Um, so, yeah. So, and... The problem with transitional age youth is that there are a lot of services for adults with disabilities and children with disabilities, but not necessarily for, like, young adults in that transition period, which is a very critical time because, you know, like, it sets you up for success for, like, basically your entire life. Um, So, yeah, they're in... You know, recently there has been a push to expand resources for transitional age youth and focus specifically on transitional age youth advocacy. Um, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to expand resources for that particular demographic. Um there are like at like I think any facet um of something like disability, there's going to be equity issues along like race lines, class lines, gender lines. Um, But I think you try to fix those as much as you can by expanding culturally competent resources, free and low cost resources, and resources that cater to specific identities so people can feel included and heard in their care. Um... Yeah, I for education, I know a lot of transitional age youth um struggle with the transition to education because you know when you have a 504, your parents and teachers are the ones who kind of manage that for you. For an IEP, the transition planning is included, but like for 504s, like once you like there's no plan for you to you know, turn 18 and have to carry all of that by yourself. Um, So, yeah, it's difficult. (laughs) When I first, um, my first like, semester at community college, um, I had difficulty because all of my accommodations were for in-person learning. So with the transition to online asynchronous learning, I really struggled. That was also the time when I was like moving out to live on my own and dealing with all of these other life changes in the midst of a pandemic. Um, so I was like, I can't this semester. I can't do it. So I went and I was like, hey, I have a disability. I all of these other factors. I need like the emergency withdrawal or excused withdrawal, the one that doesn't negatively impact your records. So I got them for all my classes that semester. I was like, okay, like great. And then I got an email that they revoked by financial aid. <laughs> I was so oh. upset. Like and community college, if it was a like a if it was a more expensive institution that I was unable to pay for by myself it would have been more um, troubling, but like, it's like $600 a semester, which I can, I can do, I can deal with, but like getting back on the financial aid is like such a process. Like, so, so after that, I was like, oh my God. But um, yeah, I think like, just like things like that, like, I feel like the, and the transition to online learning, was hard for like a lot of people with disabilities especially those who are blind or deaf like there's a lot of issues like transitioning like closed captioning or like um text-to-speech in online formats and a lot of people didn't think about that when because obviously it was a hasty transition but that doesn't mean that
0: there's an excuse for leaving so many people behind when it comes to to be growing up with diabetes and now being at the point where you're an adult with diabetes, um, kind of not to completely go back to what Sophia, what you just said about like having to call your dentist. I have to call my insurance provider and change a bunch of info. And I am like so stressed about that. I guess like with the insurance conversation, back to you, Natalia, about diabetes, that's a huge conversation that we're seeing right now when it comes to healthcare for people with diabetes. And I guess I'm, I'm curious about your experiences and your feelings about reaching adulthood and like your thoughts about having to figure out insurance once you reach a certain age because insulin is so unaffordable with those for those without health care
3: yeah so starting a little bit about like right now I can really relate to what you're saying Sophia because um it's my I'm my first semester of college and I have so much going on with my health insurance and health providers right now i changing all of that it's such a stressful time and on top of that, I have to get a whole bunch of medical supplies renewed. And so my parents have been on me so much for the past like weeks on end. I had to call my doctor like four different times, things like that, like have appointments, everything trying. And, and I hated it. It was the worst thing because I was like doing like midterms and I was getting calls from my parents being like, you need a new insulin pump. Like, have you called people? Like all of this stuff. And I was like, yeah, one sec. second, I'm working on it. There's so much going on right now. of trying to figure that out of like having, of having all of the, the normal responsibilities of adulthood and college and all of that, you know, while you also have to deal with everything that comes with your chronic illness or your disability and everything. And so for me personally, like that was such a strange hard transition is having to do all of that work of getting like a new insulin pump and talking to doctors and, and, you know, making sure I was having all my medical supplies and things getting shipped here and changing all of that information. Meanwhile, like still balancing school was so stressful. And then, um, I constantly have to be thinking ahead because I'm on my parents' insurance until I believe I'm 25. I think that is how it is for most people. And I'm really lucky to have insurance that covers a vast majority of my medical costs. But a really big thing for me is I am aware of how horribly expensive insulin is in this country. And it is one of the biggest things that it like to to this day, like it makes me like it boils my blood of how expensive it is. Because if you know the history of insulin, insulin was discovered by a scientist uh, at the University of Toronto in Canada, and they sold the patent for $1 each because of how important they thought this this discovery was, that they knew it was going to save so many lives. Um, and right now, like a vial of insulin that costs around $5 to manufacture can be between like 300 to like even $600, which is insane if you don't have insurance for a vial of insulin that... I go through about a vial of insulin like every like week and a half or so. So if you consider how expensive that is without insurance, it's, it is... It is life-threateningly expensive. And I was doing some research for uh, a senior project in high school about it. And like, I think uh, I forget the exact uh, amount of diabetics that have admitted to insulin rationing to in order to meet the amount of uh, people to afford it because it is so expensive that they quite literally cannot afford life-saving medicine, this medicine that keeps you alive. Um, It is one of the most expensive liquids in the world, and it is one that is fairly easy to manufacture.
0: It kind of comes down almost to, like, uh, a a decision between rent, food, or insulin for a lot of people, which is ridiculous. No one should be dying
3: of diabetes. Like, no one should be dying of not having access to insulin, and it is still something that so many – like, there's a lot of young people that don't have access to health insurance that are quite literally dying – from type 1 diabetes which is an easily not curable because there is no cure for it, a treatable illness through uh through insulin management and insulin and stuff but because of how expensive it is it is so unaffordable and um it is it's so heartbreaking to see the amount of people that have to starve themselves and not eat food and things like that because they can't afford the insulin to let them diet like basically uh process that sugar intake and um I'm constantly like trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Of like, by the age of 25, I have to have some form of insurance that is not my parents. And how am I going to get that? Like, if I'm in grad school or whatnot, and like, I've been I've been thinking about this for a very long time because I'm even though I'm 18 right now, you know, seven years away is not that long of a time if you think about it. Especially when you think of like how detrimental it would be if, it would be if I don't have health insurance because of how expensive insulin is. Um, and so, especially if you're like 25, most people don't have very steady jobs. Sometimes they don't have access to uh, insurance companies, things like that. Um, and if you're in grad school, if you're still studying in school, that it makes it very, very difficult. And um, it, it's like hard to think about what's going to happen. And that, that's still something that I'm very anxious about. Um, and uh, it's it's really annoying if you, especially when you like look at other countries that have universal health care. Like um, Eleanor and I are both Swedish. My mom is from Sweden. And Sweden is a, a place that has you know, a, a universal health care. And uh, uh, that was, I always like talk about Like I always joke that that's my backup option. If I'm 25 and I don't have health insurance, <laughs> I, I'm just gonna pull out that Swedish citizenship and go to a place because I like, it, it will literally come down to me being like, I either will have to have health insurance in the US through some sort of job or some sort of company because of how unaffordable insulin is, or I'm going to have to move to a different country because that is how literally expensive my
1: disability is, so. I I just um, first appreciate you sharing your experience. And that is a real challenge that so many people across this country are facing. And it's kind of embarrassing that our government hasn't come up with a solution to solve it. Thank you both for sharing your experience. There's one question here policy wise that we tend to ask all of our guests at the end um, of our recording. And I'd love to to hear your responses to this. What would your message be to young people and policy professionals who are listening uh, to this conversation and looking to do something about it. What are something that people could do daily in order to support people with disabilities? What about folks who are looking more to get involved?
3: If you if you want to, I can go first. I I'm not lit or as immersed within the 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 policy realm. I am just I'm just a uh, a person that has
2: disabilities, so that is my experience. Like that's like valid. Like I feel like people with disabilities are like the best people to inform the policy making process because it's like you don't know what it's like until you have one or if you were born with one um like yeah. it's impossible to like understand the exp- not impossible to understand but no,
3: like I, I agree with you on that hard yeah i that is a, the biggest thing that i've had to learn is that people just don't get it you know and i think it's also a big thing for people that don't have disabilities or have loved ones with disabilities that that is one thing i could convey to those people is that as much as you mean well, to be like, I would trade places with you in an instant or any of the, the the things that people say in support or whatever Is that you'll never understand the experiences that you don't have. You can empathize to an extent, but understanding and support is the best you can do. But unfortunately, it's it's hard to understand what it's like to be disabled if you don't have the disability in question. Um And I guess I, I will transition that into my advice for any policy uh, advising. Obviously, I think Sophie will probably be. Much more well versed in that sort of universe, so I will give my my very uh, layman terms of, of what I would do. Um, I I know personally that for me, it would be so much more helpful to have universal health insurance. if of, if there's any way to to start uh, sort of like the idea of the of the kind um, of break down monopolies on on. The, on and big pharma on medications because it is such a life-threatening thing for so many people. Of uh, the idea that we have a country that exists in which you can capitalize off of people's illnesses is just so disheartening and horrible. Especially when we're, you know, like insulin in the U.S. is like three hundred dollars versus, you know, surrounded by two, like, you know, by Canada on one side and Mexico on the other, where it's thirty dollars. You know, it's 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 uh, it's really just awful. The idea that you that That politicians will oftentimes um, support the idea of like the economic betterment or the idea of supporting lobbyists or supporting um, companies over human lives the idea of profit over people being a huge thing instead of people over profit and so the idea of like if you ever in a position to to break down big pharma monopolies, of of changing uh, the requirements for monopolies, because I know that a huge thing for um, having your patent on insulin, at least insulin, for example, and for big pharma companies, is that you don't even have to actually make any progressive changes to medication, but if you change it slightly, you can renew your patent on it, because patents, I think, only last about five years. So every five years, a lot of uh, insulin companies will change the insulin just slightly, and you don't have to prove that it works better. You just have to prove it works just the same, and then you can get your patent renewed, which is really sad, especially considering that it's what allows um, it allows big pharma companies to charge you know three hundred dollars for a vial insulin that costs five dollars to make. So that extends for all health insurance. The idea of like if you're in a position of policy, your your place should be putting people over profit of, of trying to take down whatever big monopolies form on whatever medications of make sure price gouging doesn't exist for medications and supporting people. And the idea of if there's a way that you can implement any form of health care, um, it, is, it is the best steps that we have to make, even if it's not universal healthcare care right off the gate. You know, we talked a little bit about the idea of incremental steps of just making it so it's easier for people to access, access the medications that they need.
0: What about you, Sophia? What's your call to action? Um,
2: I would say first uh just try to be maybe mindful of just how inaccessible the world is to for people with disabilities. Like anytime you walk up the stairs, like look if there's a ramp. Like, would a would a person in a wheelchair be able to access the same facilities that you're able to access um or if you're watching a video and there's no captions like how would a deaf person be able to understand like what you're saying or like and just have the same enjoyment like from the video as you are um, and i think that also transcends into like little things um we can do to make you know the world more accessible um like captions on videos on instagram you can add like image descriptions of like your photos and you can you can do that on a lot of social media sites um so if people aren't able to see they will be able to like know what the content of the photo is um and they're like a bunch of little things for like people who are might have like physical disabilities that you know, impair movement or like invisible disabilities, like both physical or psychiatric or, you know, whatever. I think it's like a joint effort to make the world more accessible. Um, And it can't just be like disabled people advocating for, or it can't just be people with disabilities advocating for ramps as an inclusion to stairs or, like, those little bumpy things on the sidewalks that allow, like, you know, blind people with canes to, like, be able to, you know, like, know where the curb is um, or where the crosswalk is. Um, I don't know the specific name, but, like, the world we have built is one that is inherently inaccessible. And there's... I'm not sure the exact theory. It's, like, the ability theory of disability is that, like... If everyone else could fly and you can't, and if everything was like up in buildings in the sky and like there's no way for you to get up there because you can't fly, like, you know, you would be, you know, it would be considered like a disability because you couldn't do the same things that everyone else did. But if there was an elevator or a set of stairs so you could walk up or go up to where everyone else is, like, it wouldn't be like a disability because you could get to the same place that everyone else is. Like like disability as a concept is like the world has made it hard to exist as a person with disabilities, like instead of like something being inherently like as as opposed to a person being like inherently unable to do something. Like the world is inaccessible. Like
0: did that make sense sorry that totally made sense no i was just thinking like wow i've never thought of in that framing before and i feel like that's just definitely something for me to think about and i will be thinking about that after after we finish recording but i just want to say thank you both so so much for joining us today we really appreciate you talking about your lived experiences and and your advocacy and giving us your input about where we should be headed so thank you both so much for joining us
3: thank you for having me yeah. It was really great to meet you, Sophia, and you as well, Michael. Eleanor, I do know you. Surprise, surprise. Um, great seeing you again, Eleanor.
0: Yeah, so funny.
3: I guess as like a funny little closeout, if anyone cares. I don't know if people care, <laughs> um, but as part of the sibling dynamic type thing, um, I got diagnosed 11 years ago and I was seven years old, and it is funny how uh, siblings can sometimes be the most uh, grounding and most, like, calming, uh, like stress relieving a person in the whole process just by being mean. Because what's <laughs> normal is I was in the hospital for I think four, four days, five days. And it was, I was in the ICU when I first got diagnosed. And I remember I didn't see my sister for like the first two, two and math days, something like that. And so the first time I saw her, my, I think my mom and my dad were like, your sister's coming in, blah, blah. blah. You get to see her for the first time. And I was like, great, so exciting. And I remember, taking this big old iv down the hallway that was bigger than me and i had gotten in trouble so many times writing nothing down the hallway like a skateboard but i remember <laughs> dragging this iv with me and i was like in my pajamas and i had been like in the hospital for two and a half days and all that stuff and i took it with me and i greeted my sister at this elevator and it was the first time i'd see her and i had been in the hospital and and instead of being like oh my god it's so great to see you the first thing she says to me she gives me this up and down look and she goes you look terrible <laughs> and this is Keeping most- it real, <laughs> and it was the most. I like still think of it as the most stress alleviating thing of the whole process. Is just because it was the most normal thing. Everybody had been like walking in eggshells and been like, you no, know, they're like, oh my god, you know, been diagnosed with a um, chronic illness, the whole issue, everything, and I just. <laughs> and she was like, "You look horrible," and I was like, "Everything's normal." It's
2: fine. It's, I'm it's the
0: sibling way. It's the sibling way. I also remember I walked in and you had like your terrible hospital food, and I was like, "Can I have your peas? Because I love peas." Yeah, so,
2: joke,
0: anyway, <laughs> <laughs> meal in
3: the hospital. And I love it.
0: would eat all of them. Yes, <laughs> I ate all of the peas. I love peas. I'm obsessed with them. Anyway, unrelated. <laughs> Thank you again for for joining us on this podcast.
1: This was policy wise an intergenerational podcast by Youth Leadership Institute focused on bringing young people into the policy conversation. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PolicyWisePod. If you have any questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please email us at policywise at yli.org. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes.